Let's turn together again, Luke 24. The Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 24. I'm going to read from the verse number 25, just to 27, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help once more as we come around the word. Then he, that is Jesus, said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophet have spoken. Ought not Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's again bow together in a word of prayer. Eternal God, we come before thee once more. Conscious once more of our need of blessing. Every Lord's Day, every service we come and we're mindful, Lord, that without Thee we cannot rightly understand the Word. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, for the fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God. Give help in preaching and in hearing. Help us to understand in our minds in such a manner that our hearts are warmed within us. Oh Lord, grant us grace this morning. Be pleased to speak to each and every person. May there be none who would leave here saying they did not benefit from the time under the Word of God. May this be a time of rich blessing for each and every person. We ask this humbly in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. I said last Lord's Day that this chapter in many ways highlights the building evidence of Christ's resurrection in the context of doubt and unbelief. It has that flavor as you go through the portion of the continued struggles the disciples had to believe what they were hearing and seeing. Now, they were wrestling in their own minds as to could these things surely be coming to pass. Evidence in the context of doubt and unbelief. There are a couple of things that stand out in today's reading. In verse number 6 again, mentioning the words of the angels, Remember. Remember how he spake unto you, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered. Remember. Verse number 25 also. O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 6. He spake. Verse 25. The prophets spoke. And elsewhere you find in verse number 44 and following, you have that verse number 44, it says, The things written in the law of Moses concerning me, and he opened their understanding, that they may understand the Scriptures. And he's telling them, These are the things that I told you, verse 44, the things I spake while I was with you. Do you see the connections? The prophet spoke, the Lord spoke, and they said the same things, and the same things came to pass. So you see the importance here of the predictions that were given. I could say, and I say this with the humility, we understand that we have done no better, but I say this, the resurrection should not have been a surprise. It shouldn't have been a surprise, and yet I know if it's you're, you're me and we were in the same boat, the boat, We'd be doing the same things. You see, no resurrection would have made the Lord a false prophet. 
It's very serious, isn't it? If there had been no resurrection, then Jesus Christ becomes a false prophet, and everything goes away. Chapter 9, verse 22, chapter 9, verse 44, and turn to chapter 18, verse 31, and you will see those three predictions the Lord gave regarding his future. Chapter 18, the verse number 31, he's speaking to the twelve, they're going to Jerusalem again, please note how he words it, all things that are written by the prophets shall be accomplished. You see, these, these things, Lucas is encouraging us. We're taking months over this. Luke's writing a book to be read, if you like, in one sitting. And you're seeing the Lord is saying, these things will be accomplished. And then you've got verse number 32. He shall be delivered. He shall be mocked. He shall be spitefully entreated. He shall be spitted on. They shall scourge him, put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. If that does not come to pass, the Lord's a false prophet. So the angels say, remember? Don't you remember? And they remembered. It's also worth noting that if the Lord did not rise again, then the Old Testament prophets become false prophets. All of their witness, all of their testimony, it's all for nothing because if you're a false prophet, you're not of God's. You can buy the Deuteronomy, you can read that. If a prophet's testimony does not come to pass, he's a false prophet. They don't get to make 90% of predictions right. You know, he's a good prophet. Not the best. He gets it wrong sometimes. That's the nonsense of the unbelievers regarding horoscopes. Fortune tellers. God's prophets aren't fortune tellers. They're giving the very words of God. And they must be true in every single word. Or else the prophet is not true. So how important, again, this resurrection account is for our entire faith in all the Word of God. So you get to verse number 25. And the Lord says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? You see the importance of the Old Testament Scriptures in explaining the resurrection and undergirding the truth of the events. But before developing that thought, Let's briefly look at the details of this walk to Emmaus that leads to these words in verse 25. Verse 13 describes these two men walking to a village called Emmaus. Three score furlongs, the general thought is, about seven miles, about a seven-mile walk to Emmaus. Again, by the way, this is often used as one of the evidences that the Lord did not swoon. He walked this journey not as one who is broken and bruised and destroyed, if you like, on the cross, but as one who rose in the glorious power of a new humanity. A wonderful testament again to the Lord's true resurrection. That's just in passing. But they're walking these seven miles, likely because they live there. When you get to verse number 28, they go to stay. And so it's generally assumed that these men may well have lived, or at least had family, in Emmaus, hence the reason for their walking. But as they walk, they do what most people do when they walk, they talk. They talk with each other regarding the things that are happening. When they begin to tell the Lord what they're talking about, I think in many ways it comes to a height in verse 22 regarding they're discussing what's just been transpiring that day regarding the testimony of women when they went to the sepulcher. Verse 22 to 24 
they're discussing the fact that they, they went to the tomb, the Lord was not there, they saw angels, and in fact there were those who went along and they confirmed what they had seen. But him the men saw not, verse number 24. You see, this is Luke's first account of an appearance of Jesus. We know that in the garden he's appeared to Mary. We know he's also appeared to the other woman. From verse 34, it is likely he's appeared to Simon in and around appearing to these two men. There are different views as to did he appear to Simon Peter before or after this. But as far as these men were aware, no man has seen the Lord. And so Luke's bringing this to our attention. For some reason, their eyes are holden that they should not know him. Verse 16. I say some reason, and I'm going to say the reason why later on, as I believe this is the case, how it happened, I don't know. Was it the Lord's appearance, or is it some divine restraint upon their sight that they could not perceive who it was? Again, very hard to be dogmatic regarding that particular matter. However, we do see the Lord draws near, and he says to them, well, really, what are you talking about? This is another instance whereby the Lord God asks a question to draw a response not out of ignorance. This happens. Where art thou, Adam? Again, he's drawing a response. He's saying, well, what's going on in your mind? What are you discussing? In verse 18, they say, are you a stranger? Verse 18 is actually a very, very important Verse in the New Testament narrative. Art thou only a stranger and hast not known the things which come to pass there in these days? The events regarding Jesus were very, very public. There were those that could deny the events, and there were many who would bear witness to the things that are contained in the Gospels. You see, you need to remember something. The Gospels were written at the time when people were still alive who were alive during the events that were taking place at this point. There were those who could pick up a Gospel record and say, wait a minute, that's not what happened. Or there were those who could read a Gospel record and go and find someone who could testify that what happened was true. These historical documents, they bear the weight of history as being written at the time of the events by first-hand witnesses. And so you, you read them 2,000 years later, and you go, nah, that didn't happen. Because of the blindness of your heart and your determination not to believe truth, but to believe a lie. These are very public events, not like the cults. Some guy getting a vision of a Book of Mormon coming down privately, secretly, and then going to the world and saying, you should live your life by this. How ungodly is that? See, God's purpose in this world is to present us a revelation that we can believe on, that we can stake our lives on, that we can die by, that everything we have in this book we can rely upon. And so God has worked these situations out in human history that we can be confident regarding what we have. And no, this is of the Lord. That's why I say verse 18 is a very, very important verse. These things were very, very public. In fact, when you get down to verse number 19, you see what they say. How could you not know about this man Jesus? A mighty prophet in deed and word, not only before God, but all the people. 
Can you see the point here? This is something that is consistently shown to be public. Again, when you go down through the description of their words, uh, you will note with interest verse number 20, that the blame of these disciples regarding the death of Christ is not put upon Pilate or Herod, but upon the chief priests and the rulers. These men understood the situation here. Again, the source of the Lord's persecution came from those who were entrusted with the word of God. It's a very sad situation. These men clearly understood the importance of a messianic figure, verse 21, but we trusted that it, should, that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Now, I think you've got to read this without the sight that you have in light of redemption, blood redemption, delivered from sin. I think what's in view here is the idea of deliverance from the Roman authorities because that gives context. And besides this, it's the third day since these things were done. And so the idea is they thought he would deliver, but they forgot that he would deliver by sacrifice, death, and resurrection. And so that's why the confusion is here. They clearly have not grasped the Scriptures. They've understood of a Messiah coming, but there's great misunderstanding as they work through who he was and what he was to do. And so they are now disappointed. Their hope has been deferred, put off, and they feel sick with a disappointment of unrealized expectations. Until verse number 22, where they're now scratching their heads in confusion. We had hoped this, death came, but now we don't know what to think. That's the essence here. They're, they're all at sea in their minds. The woman went to the sepulcher and the body's gone. What are we to make of this? Is he alive? Even those who went to the sepulchre found it as the woman had said. This then begins a sermon like no other. Beginning at Moses, verse 27, and all the prophets, he expounds unto them in all the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself. I, I've heard it often said how much people would love to hear that sermon. It is a sermon like no other. And people say, I, I wish I had been there at that time and I could listen to that sermon. Can I, in part, put away your disappointment in that regard? You have the epistles that contain the content of this sermon. Do you understand that? The men who got this were part of the apostolic band who then put into redemptive history the epistles explaining how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Do not believe you're some second-hand citizen. You've got what God wants you to have from this sermon. And do not mistreat it. Do not despise it. Rejoice in the fact that you have the whole book of Hebrews that explains in so many ways how Christ fulfilled all the scriptures. So I'm thankful for the men that shared this sermon with others and enabled others to then record what they were taught of by Christ Jesus. Hence, I can now preach a sermon on this sermon with confidence because I've got evidence in the Word of God as to what the Lord said in this particular sermon so that our faith can be strengthened, our hope can be steadfast, and our hearts can be burning within us. So let's think about how the Word of God is used in this regard. Moses, the prophets, in verse number 40, 44, he includes the reference to the Psalms also. 
Remember, there's more than one sermon here. I'm suggesting this things are the same content in both of these occasions. The Lord explained the scripture regarding himself. These terms, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, governing the canon of the Old Testament as we have it. So how is it used? First of all, the Lord grounds their faith in the scriptures. The Lord takes the time to reuse the revealed word in the hearing of these men. Why? Why does he say to them, you are slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken? He could have revealed himself to them. This is the reason, I believe, why their eyes were holden. They should not know him. If the Lord had revealed himself as he does to Mary, and she sees him and knows him, if the Lord has done that in these men, then their faith is grounded in part by what they see in front of them, not by what is happening in the fulfillment of the word of God. Now, the Lord will show himself to them eventually. But first and foremost, he makes sure that their faith is grounded in the word of God. That is very, very important. That they have the understanding that what's before them is the fulfillment of divine revelation. And the scriptures are true. That's why it takes a time. They could have been amazed. Oh, Lord, it's you. And they could have walked and talked about all of that. But the Lord says, no, patience. I'm first of all going to teach you the word of God. That their faith in the scriptures would be increased. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Faith is grounded in a revelation, in a testimony, not in a sight or an experience. But the scriptures being fulfilled, they prove that God is, period. The truth of the scriptures is an evidence of the reality of God being. And that the being God is a true God, and all that he says is true. And so, you see just in this very brief observation, the tremendous danger that there is in the world of neglect of Bible teaching. The neglect of Bible teaching is fearful. In a nation, in a culture that has so much access to the Word of God. You know how easy it is to draw lines of application this way and that way. A lack of Bible teaching in the home brings a generation of children who are ignorant of the Word of God, ignorant of the things of God, and thereby we wonder, why don't they believe these things? Faith comes by hearing the Word of God and showing how the Word of God all sticks together. And with then confidence, there is a living God who speaks and has spoken in His Word. And you get the confidence that comes whereby young people are they're thrust into the world as though you have convictions. Again, of course, the Bible is completely absent in the public schools. It's gone. No, no Bible teaching at all. That was not the way it was done in former generations. It's the absence of any instruction in the Word of God. I'm not suggesting for a second that schools take the place of parents. I'm just drawing the full picture. The neglect of the Word of God has tremendous consequences, and we see it. And I've said this before. We live in a generation whereby now the Sabbath day is a Sabbath hour. And Bible teaching is 20 minutes of a homily of some description, and there is no substantial Bible teaching in so many supposedly evangelical churches. 
And we wonder why a generation is rising that is not strong in faith and strong conviction. There's a direct correlation between the amount of Bible teaching and the convictions people have. I praise God by His grace and His mercy. There are, there are some exceptions. There are those who have been raised in very little Bible teaching yet are strong in conviction. I understand that. But do not make the exception the rule. The general rule is no Bible, no faith. Little Bible, little faith. Much Bible, much faith. That's a general rule. So you find yourself struggling to believe and to go forward? Immerse yourself in the Bible. I would add to this that unlike the Lord's teaching here, neglect of the Old Testament is a tremendously dangerous proposition. People say, I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, if you mean by that New Covenant, sealed by the blood of Christ, the New Covenant, that's one thing. But if you mean you're going to spend all your time just studying the New Testament... You are robbing yourself of tremendous benefit to your spiritual experience. So whatever you do in your Bible reading, please do not neglect the Old Testament. But make sure you read the Old Testament and the New Testament together in such a way that they are woven in your minds that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. You know these things, but it's good to be reminded. Secondly, the Lord opens their mind by the Scriptures. Verse number 25 again, the Lord says, O fools and sloweth heart. And he then opens up the scriptures to their minds. I'll come back to that, but just note please verse 44 again, which is very emphatic. Verse 45, sorry. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. The issue here, of course, is the confusion of the disciples. Remember I said, I highlighted this when you get to verse number uh, 21 and following. We thought this, but this happened, and now we don't know what's happening. It happens in our lives all the time, doesn't it? We thought this, but now this, so now we don't know what's happening. And what's the best solution? Get into the Bible and understand the Word of God. And so uh, the Lord says to the disciples, you're fools. Now, here, the Lord's not violating what he says, called no man fool, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's using the term here as a, uh, actually as a, as a gentle rec- recognition, strong as well, but the recognition that their understanding is deficient. That's the problem. And so he highlights the issue. The problem is your mind right now. So let me address the problem and open your understanding. And he does so through the Scriptures. The primary theme here is actually on the Lord's suffering at this point. Okay, so you read this and you might think to yourself, ought not Christ to have suffered and enter His glory, as if those are two separate issues. The thought in this initial sermon is particularly on His sufferings. That's that's what He's dealing with, because they're confused. We thought He'd redeem Israel, but He's dead. So how do we understand this? Our, Our Messiah died, He suffered. How can this be? And the Lord says, It was necessary. That's the word. Ought not. It was necessary. Verse number 46. It behoved Christ to suffer. He's making the point. It was absolutely necessary for Christ to suffer. And so in our confusion, we must put ourselves again under the word of God and use the word of God to clarify our minds and again to understand that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. 
three reasons. First of all, suffering was necessary for the fulfillment of prophecy. That's the Lord's main point, isn't it? Ought not Christ have suffered? Therefore, should you not believe all that the prophets have spoken? Indeed, in all the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So let me illustrate this with one of each. Begin with Moses. Again, young people. Moses describes the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch. In Jewish thought, the Torah. Genesis chapter 3 and the verse number 15 is the first instance whereby there's a prediction that the Messiah will suffer. Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, of course, addressed the devil. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Moses' first prediction of the suffering of the Messiah. And that, if you like, it's a platform, or if you like, a springboard from which all the other predictions in Moses arise. The sacrifice of the lamb. A lamb substituted, whereby the people's sins could be atoned. That in order to destroy the curse of the law, what's the curse bring? It brings death, it brings sin, condemnation. That's removed in Moses' language by sacrifice and by blood, by a suffering animal. Moses spoke of the suffering of Messiah. What about the psalmist? Well, I, I thought of Psalm 22. And of course, all the language, but please turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 22, of course, highlights, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But what I want you to see in Psalm 118, which has been used in the gospel records so many times regarding Christ coming into Jerusalem and all those events. But you see what happens in verse number 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. I turn you there because it highlights the point that the Messiah, the headstone of the corner, must first suffer. It's in the psalmist. It's in the Moses. It's in the Psalms. And of course, it's in the prophets. Isaiah 53. All the language regarding the suffering of Christ in that portion, the suffering servant of Jehovah. And so, if the Lord's sufferings are necessary to fulfill prophecy, the Word of God is not true if the Messiah does not suffer. And so we're saying, ought not Christ have suffered? Oh, it was absolutely necessary to even prove and demonstrate the integrity of God. The Lord had said this was so, He must suffer. Secondly, the Lord had to suffer to fulfill God's plan of redemption. To complete God's plan. What does a prophet do? Young people, please don't be smart. Prophesy. I know they prophesy, okay? What is it to prophesy? It is to reveal the Word of God. That's their task. They are to reveal the words that come from God. And the words that come from God are the words that reveal the will of God, at least in part. They reveal the purpose of God, the intent of God, the plans of God. God's plans and intents, they are revealed by His words. His words are given to us by the prophets. Therefore, the prophets, they give promises that come from God, those promises that reflect His will. That's their duty. They are to show the purpose of God's. 
Hence we say, and please, this is a mouthful, but I, I trust you understand. It is the doctrine of the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. Every word important. The atonement is absolutely necessary, consequent on God planning and purposing to redeem people. This way, in some senses, God could still have been God without redemption. But we understand in the fullness of God's plan that it was part of God's eternal will to redeem a people unto Himself. And consequent to that determination in the mind of God, it was therefore absolutely necessary for Christ to suffer. It's the consequent absolute necessity of the atonement. Wisdom. The wisdom of God makes the suffering of Christ necessary. There was no other way. Another way for sinful man to reconcile to God, but by a substitute offering atonement on their behalf. The love of God makes the suffering of Christ necessary. How could the Father bruise the Son? Because He loves a people, and He loves the Son. Again, just something else to ponder. The Lord's decision to bruise the Son is an act of love both for the people and for the Son. The people are brought into redemption, and the Son is the Redeemer, glorified, exalted as the Redeemer, with the kingdom that is His own. The wonders of God's love in the planning of redemption necessary out of the love of God. The justice of God makes suffering necessary. He was just and the justifier. And I'm just simply demonstrating that all that is in God in His plan of redemption makes necessary the suffering of Christ. Ought not Christ have suffered? The prophet said so. Thirdly, suffering is necessary for Christ to enter His glory. Now here is the connection. Ought not Christ to have suffered and to enter into His glory? John Gill observes that the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of our New Testament said this, and so or thus to enter into His glory. And the Latin draws the connection in the way that our English Bible does not. Suffer and thus to enter His glory. Now we know that to be true. Because someone... Christ himself, but also the mind of the apostles. Christ, the apostles, all conveyed to Paul this truth. And Paul wrote Philippians chapter 2. That's what I'm saying. This sermon is in the New Testament scriptures. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that our Savior was obedient to death, the death of the cross, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. He enters glory consequent on his sufferings. The principle being that if he did not suffer, he would not have been glorified. You, you, you think, well, how, how can that be so? Well, because the Bible says it's so. It's so because it's so. It's so because that was God's plan of redemption, that the Savior would suffer in such a way and thereby enter his glory. It was necessary for Jesus Christ to reign. He had to suffer. He's the eternal Son of God. But yes, in His messianic kingdom, from to reign over this world and over you all, He had to suffer and to enter His glory. There was no other way. There's no other way for anybody saved. Absolutely necessary for Christ to suffer. No other way for man to be saved. No other way for Christ 
to reign forever and forever. Because that's what God said. Thirdly, in these use of the Scripture, we see the Lord using the Bible to open their minds. And as He opens their minds, He grounds their faith. But thirdly, we see that the Lord warms their hearts in using the Scriptures. Verse 32. This is their testimony. But we'll come back to this section next Lord's Day. Verse number 32. They give a testimony as to their feelings under the sermon. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us the Scriptures? What are they describing here? They're describing how they felt under the exposition of the Word of God. They responded within themselves. The, the idea of burning here, it's, it's the regular word for burn. It's used in different places to burn something. But it's used of John the Baptist. In John chapter 5, he's a burning and a shining light. What was inside John comes out. His heart is a, a fire for God, alive for God. A, a similar concept is in the Psalm 33, in the, sorry, Psalm 39, and the verse number 3. My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. This, this vivid, vivid imagery of the child of God immersed in the truth of God, and their hearts are on fire. Here we've got to be careful that we are not skeptical or suspicious of internal experience under the Word of God. Uh, again, I, I make no apology. I seek to address your understanding as a preacher. My duty is to teach the Word of God, to explain the Scriptures, to put it all together for you as best I can in such a way that your minds are informed, you grow in your understanding. But clearly, I do not want this to happen in such a way that you become a dry intellectual without any spiritual experience. You see, clearly, this is a good thing. Verse 32 should not be looked upon with skepticism, but looked upon with a sense of longing. The Lord did this in their hearts. The Lord did this in their hearts, knowing how they would have responded. Therefore, the nature of this spiritual experience, a burning heart, is something we should desire to nurture. The nature, if you like, it is a fire, a live spirit towards the Lord. But the nurture of that is by the Scriptures. How do we nurture a spiritual experience like this? By the Scriptures explained to your understanding so that we see Christ. You see, spiritual heat is not produced by a direct act upon the emotions, but by the work of God upon the mind. It's not by the music or by the atmosphere. It's by the mind being informed regarding the Word of God. And as the mind sees Christ, so the heart burns with love and appreciation for the glory of Christ. That's what's happening here. Their understanding's opened and their hearts burn. So it's something of the nature of this. So should you desire for this in your heart? Should you desire a burning heart unto God when you're under the Word of God, when you're in the Word of God in your own homes? Should you desire this? Yes, you should desire this. Hope 
make it not ashamed. The love of God is shared abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Now, I've got to make some qualifications here. This is not a continual experience. The child of God will not have this experience at all times. And the lack of such an experience does not mean that you're not a Christian. Some people have misused this idea of spiritual experience, and they use your spiritual experience to govern whether or not you're really a child of God. I love the hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. And the hymn writer there says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. There's a recognition that, that our standing before God does not depend upon what's inside our hearts in terms of our emotional response to the Word of God. Our standing before God rests upon Christ in heaven. That's how we stand before God, because there's one, our forerunner, who went before us before God and is accepted. And we're accepted in Him. But the danger is that we'll use the truth of justification and thereby excuse our lack of spiritual experience. This is a good thing wrought in the disciples' heart, and therefore we should desire this in our own hearts. We should long to burn under the Word of God. How, does, how do we do this? By immersing ourselves in the Scriptures to see Christ. That's what caused their hearts to burn within them. I believe it is important and good to have special seasons when our hearts are warm before God in an unusual fashion. Now, there are times, and I think there's a spectrum here, and there are times the fire is there, but it burns dimly. Other times there's a raging furnace in our souls. Again, do not look at yourself in some sort of way that you normalize this into one experience and one time. This is a general thing that should be desired by the child of God, but sometimes it is ferocious. Other times it burns, if you like, with the embers on fire. But it's always nurtured by the Word of God, seeing Christ in the Scriptures. When's the last time? When's the last time you set aside special time to get before God and find Christ in the Scriptures? Well, I guess every day. Well, that's good. Does your heart burn every day? Do you have this sense of being with the Lord every day? No, if you're like me, you don't. And so I think it is important that sometimes a child of God will set aside time out of their schedule and say, I am going to spend a concentrated period of time before God in the Scriptures, digging and digging. I want to see Christ in the Scriptures, and I'm going to sit there until the fire burns. It's a good practice. Not that we become monks and nuns and hide off in ourselves and we do nothing else. We live in the real world. But I know people read the Scriptures and they say to themselves, I want my heart to burn this way. Well then, by God's grace, do something about it. Be in the Word. And find Christ in all the Scriptures. John. John the Baptist, Sean, is one that burned. It is my heart's desire that, that I would burn and therefore shine, that you would burn and therefore shine. 
And as we're in the Word, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, and continually confronted with Christ, our spiritual experience would rise in such a way that will shine in this world like never before. You see, if we're not shining very brightly, the likelihood is we're not burning with much intensity. So pray over these things. Thank the Lord today for the Bible. The Bible whereby your faith rests and you know that these things are true. Thank the Lord that the Bible is all about Christ and that you see in the Bible salvation in the Savior. And thank the Lord in His mercy that by the Spirit we have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Let's bow together, please, in a word of prayer. Almighty God and Father, we do pray that you give us grace, particularly in these last thoughts, to to balance our spiritual experience with our unchanging standing in Christ. That a lack of spiritual intense experience would not cause us to question our justification, but that we would not use our justification to excuse a lack of passion when it comes to our walk with the Lord. And so bless and direct this word to each and every hearer. You, you, you know what must go to where. And I pray, O oh God, for the Spirit of God to bring the word to each person. I pray for some, perhaps racked with doubts and unbelief, that the realization of Scriptures being fulfilled would strengthen their hearts today, that they would, they would stand here today and say, Yes, Jesus Christ is Lord and God. And so, O oh Lord, bless and encourage our hearts May this Sabbath day, may this even this afternoon be a time of a special visiting of you to your people. That their hearts will be strengthened and encouraged. Oh, Lord, may we take our walk with thee seriously. And delight in those times we come and draw alongside. Draw near to your people today. And bless our souls in Jesus' name. Amen.